Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. We spent a lot of time on verse 11. Um, we may have even read verse 12. Nope. You never read verse 12? No, nope, we left off at 12 of the Rashi. Right, like we, we referenced it because the, the, the storyline, the, the Rashi comments kind of rely on your, your knowing a little bit more about what happens in the upcoming scenes. Well, let's start by reading verse 12. Um, and then we'll jump into the Rashi. Did we actually parse verse 12 slowly last week? No? Not in the Rashi. No, but but in the the verse itself. Yes. Okay. Yes, we did. We I, I marked that we're just on the Rashi now. Okay. So then let me read the... I think we read it, but, I think we, read it, but we didn't uh, really discuss some of the... You know, didn't really go into it deeply. Okay. So uh, let me read the verse to get us going. And then we'll, we'll assign a reader for Rashi. So verse uh, 12, Yes, remember we read this, that he turned, he, Moshe, turned, um, here and there, and he saw there was no man. And I remind, remember telling you, like, just be, be alert to how the word ish is used in this whole story and you get the you get you get the flow of it if you read through without doing this pausing for the rashi that we're doing but just notice in the previous verse in verse 11 that there was a vayar ish mitzri that moshe saw egyptian man in this verse he's saying ain ish there's no man in the next verse they're going to be shnei anashim two israelite men who are fighting and in the next verse the israelites are going to kind of accuse Moshe of why are you trying to be an ish to us? So it, it, it's, it's not a coincidence that that word is used all the way through. What it actually means is up for us to decide. Um, so Vayarki Enish, he saw there was no man. Vayach et Hamitsri, he smote the Egyptian, which we assume to mean that he killed him. Vayet menehu and he hid him, he obscured him in the sand. So uh, pretty pretty um, standard Hebrew words. There are certainly leftover questions as to what phrases connote, right? What does it mean that he saw that there was no man? Um, Rashi's obviously going to pick up on that. Um, and what does kovacho mean? So that's the verse itself. Let's pause here for any questions or comments on the verse before we go to Rashi. Rick, Bavakasha. Uh, good morning. <clears throat> I, just, I just wanted to say the uh, proper way to lane uh, kovacho is you go, you can go left or right, it's, it's uh, optional, but you go ko this way and you go vacho that way or the other way, just thought I'd let you know. Um, proper or shtick or both? Proper shtick? <laughs> yes, you can, you, can, you can act out that verse, right? Um, okay, uh, questions or comments? By the way, if there are people who are joining for the, um, who haven't been joining recently, um, if you don't have, uh, um, if you don't have the actual, a book in front of you, you can pull up the Rashi on Safaria um, uh, just by going to the chapter of the um, of, of Shmot, Safaria.org, S-E-F-A-R-I-A.org, uh, chapter 2, verse 12. Click on the verse. It'll open up commentaries on the side. You can click on Rashi. Okay. Uh, questions or comments on the verse? Things that, that don't make sense, things that you imagine... Rashi or not Rashi would want to explore more deeply before we go into the Rashis. The word Vayach. What about it? I'm not a, it's, a, it's a word I'm not familiar with. Aha. Uh-huh. So the root is Hey Kaf Hey, or sometimes Mem Kaf Hey, but the root is really Hey Kaf Hey to smite. You, you know it from Parshat Mishpatim, Make Ish. Motumat, right? If you smite a man, um, then he will be, um, uh, you, you give up your own life. You know it from the Haggadah's way of referring to the 10 plagues. Eser Makot, same root, to smite. So it, we, we, we played this, we played with this a little bit in the previous verse when it was Make Ish Ivrim Echav. Remember that Rashi read that what the Egyptian man was doing to the Israelite was not killing him, but tormenting him. 
right? Even though, and the reason why Rashi has to put, work hard to get us there is because Rashi knows that biblically speaking, lehakot means to smite, to, to, to smack in order to kill. But as the language developed, you can also use maket to mean to smite with the plague and to torment, right? But most of the times in the, in the, in the Torah, including in this verse, it means to kill. And the reason why it's vayach is because the third letter of the root is a hey. And when, the, when you have a three-letter root with a third letter of the root is a hey, um, and you're putting it in the future tense or the vavayipuch, then the hey jobs off. So it's really should have been vayake, but the hey falls off to vayach. Like um, vayivk is how you say, and he cried. The hey of vayivke falls off in that formulation. This, may make, this makes no sense, I'm sure, to anybody, not even to me. But for some reason, yach, just, it, it sounds to me, feels to me like rach, which is soft. So it makes the it makes the, the makah sort of soft. I don't know why, and I don't know if anybody else feels that way. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I mean, even, even the kah, the hard kaf of the root, lahakot, is softened, pun intended. It's rach, it's made more rach, by having the kaf be turned into the chav. It's, in this case, Larry, it's raw grammar, but it doesn't mean that it can't be evocative. Um, Nayor, oh, Nayor, you got the verse. Okay. Um, let's see, Sue Marshall Barry. Well, I just wanted to say that we've had this, with the mysterious ish is not, um, un- is not something that we haven't seen before and right. in the past. And, and Rashi doesn't really go into the mysterious ish here. Um, I don't think. Did I miss it? But Listen, Rashi will talk about the Anashim in the next verse, but doesn't spend much time on the Ish of this verse. So the Ish, the, the Ish that we don't know who they are or if they were really there. Don't we have an Ish with? We have an Ish with a lot of in a lot of scenes, an, yeah. an, an unknown Ish that is sometimes an angel and sometimes not, and we're sometimes not sure they were actually there. We had Yonatan and, and, uh, 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 and David and there, there's always an ish. There seems to be a mysterious ish placed exactly where the mysterious ish needs to be, or in this case needs not to be um, uh, like they were apparitions. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the, the one that most people go to in their minds is the ish who uh, directs Yosef to where his brothers are in Dotan, right? right? That's that, what I was thinking of. Ehu Ish, and Ish found him. And, you know, there are many, many sermons written on what we're supposed to be pulling out of the fact that that a random Ish on the road can change everything, like can, can be a Robert Frostian decision as to, you know, which path to take. Uh, Marshall, Barry, and then Tova. Uh. Again, focusing as uh, it was on Kiain Ish, what does it mean, Ish? Uh, is, it, is anybody present? Or uh, is there anybody who's manly enough? Are you a man? Yeah. To step forward and do something? Um, so maybe Moses says, well, if there isn't, maybe I got to do something. Yes. So, Mar- uh, Marshall, that hey. really, you know, that's right. So it's possible that um, th- that rabbinic witticism, literally, in a place that are no um, men, people, this is from Kirkevot, um, to try to be a man. So, the fact that the, the, that a rabbinic witticism asks you to become an ish where there are no anashim suggests that their read of the anashim and the, 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 the many times that ish appears in the Torah is a suggestion of, 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 of not just literal presence, but some kind of a moral presence, right? And you could read that very well into this verse, right? Vayifen kovako, you look here and there, vayarki enish. The simplest reading is probably... He saw there was no man, meaning what? He could do it without being caught. That's, that's probably the simplest shot. Right? He saw there's no one around. Right? The same thing like you know, when a kid steal, you know, sneaks a cookie from the cabinet. Or, Vayarki Ainish, he saw there was no other person who was going to stand up to this injustice. And so he resolved 
that his only option was to take it upon himself, right? That's a plausible reading. It's certainly a plausible reading back from the rabbinic notion that lihiyot ish, to be a man, I know it's gendered in this, in this way, but try to hear it ungendered. It's sometimes impossible to ungender Hebrew. What it means is to, 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 to stand up and be human in a way that some people fail to do. That's very plausible reading. Uh, Barry, um, and then Tova, and then Larry Diane. Well, there's been so much wisdom already. Uh, I don't know what I can add now. Um, so uh, first is each Misri. Now there's no Ish. Um, does that mean that if Israelite Adonashim were watching, they don't count? Uh, he's only concerned whether there's an Ish Mitzri. The other is no no Ish washing. It reminds me of uh, uh, who, uh, Adam and Eve and, and uh, the, the, the killing and where are you hiding and uh, there's no Ish. Well, there's always an Ish. And immediately upon uh, him killing this Mitzri, there's an Ish or Anashim. Yeah, yeah. Um, Everett Fox, whom we know, goes to pains to really translate the Torah in a way that is sensitive to the Hebrew, but also reads well in English. And some, he, sometimes he puts in occasional parentheses. He, he, he's loath to do it because he wants the Hebrew to speak for itself, but sometimes to make the English expression work, you have to. The way he translates this verse, he turned this way and that way. And seeing that there was no man, he puts in parentheses there, right? Like, Everett Fox does not want to read this madrashically as seeing there was no man who was going to stand up to do the right and the good, but literally there was no man there. And his, and his comment on it is, although some have interpreted that as, that as quote unquote, uh, this as no man around to help, the expression taken in context would seem to indicate that Moshe was afraid of being seen. This ancient, uh, this incident reveals Moshe's concern and early leanings towards being a liberator, but also demonstrates his youthful lack of forethought. So it's by, by, by Everett Fox putting in the word there and disabusing us of trying to read it midrashically, he's actually sharpening why it's so interesting to read it midrashically, that what does it mean that there was no man? Uh, Tova, Larry, Diane, Alexandra, Matt, and then we're going to read Arashi. Uh, well, I concur that uh, there's been a lot of wisdom already, uh, but one of the things that uh, sort of cla- was, clash- was clashing in my brain a little bit is that the scenes up until now, and certainly the, just the previous verse, seems populated. He goes down to see his brethren, and he sees this man tormenting in some way someone, and then he looks right and left, or he looks here and there, and suddenly there is no ish, there are no men. So there's, there's some of a, a sort of a, a clash there, and I guess what's suggesting in my mind is, in a way, a lack of impulsivity, that he has held back, he has waited uh, until that, that's the case. Uh, but then there's also the contradiction later that he is observed. Evidently, there were, were men there because it's known what, what happened. Uh, so I, I'm sort of trying to find a, a hold on putting all that together. Yeah, it's inter- interesting, Tova, to, to see that contrast in these few short words that open up our reading Moshe as either extremely mature, grown up, morally grounded um, and thoughtful or impetuous and, and have not yet um, um, learned how to be an adult. Uh, remember Tova's comment to everybody when Rashi comments, probably not this week, but probably next week, on the verse of the word ish two verses from now, right? So I said the, the word, word ish or anashim appears in all these verses. Rashi's reading on, in, in verse 14 of the word ish is very evocative of, of what Tova just shared. So Baruch Shekivant, well, well done. Okay, Larry, Diane, uh, Alexandra, Matt, and then we're going to read a Rashi. I love the ambiguity in the, in the verse, or the first part of the verse. <clears throat> and um, uh, it, it Alter also points it out. So I'd just like to offer two alternative interpreted translations. Ah, uh, well done. Two alternative translations. There you go. So he turned this way and that, and seeing that no one was watching him, dot, 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 you go one way, 
okay, Kovecho, or looking this way and that, and seeing that there was no one else to step forward, yeah. dot, dot, dot. If you, if you translate them interpretively that in one of the two ways, then you have to go one way or the other. But here, the ho, the ho, the, the, the ko, the ho, is in fact, refers to the way to, you can interpret the whole verse. <laughs> nice. You're, you're saying that the language itself, like form matching content, that the, the, the verse suggests a, 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 a this way and that way of reading the verse about his turning this way and that way. Lovely. Lovely. Alexandra. Hi. Hi. Uh, I am this, I'm wondering, um, there's a, a Maimonides, probably for me, it's going to be a misquote most likely, but um, he said something like, God speaks to those who have achieved a level of self-perfection in order to guide them to their purpose. The idea that um, like prophecy is earned and not necessarily like um, inherently born into that person. And so I was thinking that this might be the pivotal moment for him that he, that the looking right and left could be that pivotal, that he like, this is the moment he decides to step up and do something. And this is the moment that he changes who he is and his whole like destiny possibly. Yeah. Yeah. And particularly when you think about the, the root lift note, right. By Yifin, he turned, right. Um, God turns to us. there's there's a spiritual valence to turning in the Jewish tradition. Again, it could also just mean that it literally is he turned, right? He swiveled, but it it could be a kind of an internal turning as he tries to figure out who Moshe is going to be. And that's how Ever Fox reads it. This, this, this is Moshe pre-liberator, right? Um, I remember there was like in the big book of Jewish humor, when I, which was my Bible growing up, I used to read it cover to cover every time I visit my grandparents in New York city. Um, by Moshe Waldox, there was some cartoon in there of, of like Moshe as a child, and it's him sitting over his his cereal bowl, like splitting the milk, you know, one one side to the other, right? Kind of a a whimsical way of understanding a childhood Moshe. So this is also like like e- even before he knew he was before the burning bush, before any of that, there was some sense that he was meant to turn this way and that, see what the circumstances are, and liberate the Israelites. So yeah, okay. Uh, Matt, and then I'm going to put I'm going to put a line at Matt, and then we're going to read some Rashi's, and the others uh, remember what you were going to say. Matt. Okay, very br- very briefly, three things. One, with note kovacho, it would be fun to translate that as he faced here and there, because panim with note. Yes. Okay. Two, two to paraphrase Freud, uh, sometimes an ish is just an ish. Yes. And thirdly. To quote incorrectly from memory, Shalom Alechem, he welcome, uh, Tevya welcomes someone to his barn or whatever. Shalom Alechem visits him and he welcomes him and he offers him some hospitality and he says, "B'makom she'en ish is herding a fish." So b'makom, whereas when there's nobody around, then you know herring is poor people's food, but it's good enough to offer. It's what I have. So. Wait, 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 I miss it. But Bakom Shein Ish is herring a fish. What am I guessing? Well, just translate it. The words are the same in English. Bakom Shein Ish, herring is a fish. Meaning, it's it's not really a good fish. It's not a trout. It's it's a salty something or other. I see. I see. I see. Um, interesting. He's just he's justifying his his poor hospitality. Got it. Got it. Got it. But he relies on this pasuk from us that Bakom Shein Ish. Got it. Okay, um, let's move forward because we're, we're almost halfway through the class and we haven't even read a Rashi yet. So, uh, Matt, since you're unmuted, do you want to read the Rashi okay. on Kobecho? Yes, give me just one second. And I won't be embarrassed like I was last time. Uh, By the way, as you were quoting Shalom Aleichem and Tevya, with your uh-huh. beard, I'm not sure which one you look like more, <laughs> but at least one of them. More like Tevye. Shomalechem had a very neat guti, I think. Okay. V'yifen kovacho. Ra'a ma me. Ra'a me asalo 
בבית, ומה עשה לו בשדה, ולפי פשוטו... So pause, because that's the end of his first comment. Okay. Uh, right, once, once he goes, ולפי פשוטו, yeah. we know that up until now, he's offering a nice little midrashic explanation. Okay, okay, right, good. Okay. All right. So, before, he saw what was being done to him in the house. What what he did to him in the house. Uh-huh. What he had done to him in the house, and what he did to him in the field. There. Right. So, you know, this is why sometimes you know pausing, um, you know, in, in the flow of verses uh, makes it hard to understand uh, Rashi's flow of comments. Does anyone remember what he is referring to here? R- Rashi is being somewhat self-referential. What's he referring to here? Matt, do you remember? Uh, no. Uh, there's a parenthesis outside the house, the beating to which he had subjected him. I mean, right. No, that's not... So if you remember, I, don't remember previous, I don't remember previous beating. Uh, Larry, Diane, your hand is up. Yeah. Well, he's referring to the, the rape of his wife. Um, so, um, <clears throat> um, oh, 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 okay. I forget the, I forget the, uh, Shlomit. Yes. Who the taskmaster had, had raped in the house and then had beaten the, um, had beaten the Hebrew outside the house. Those are the two things he's referring to. Right. So, so Rashi is saying, um, um, quoting basically the same source, that the Vayifen Kobaho is not the, sometimes a cigar is not a cigar, sometimes turning here and there is not just turning here and there, and sometimes turning is a more lofty spiritual turning. He was able to see, and the original version of the, of the Midrash includes the word Ruach HaKodesh, through Ruach HaKodesh, through divine intervention, Moshe discerned the whole story, right? Don't, don't like what every any teacher or parent wishes they were able to do when they see the aftermath of a kerfuffle, right? They it would be very be great to know exactly what happened. You don't know what happened. You have to guess. How do you how do you impose discipline? We don't know who did what. So Moshe turned this way and that way, meaning he saw a vision of everything that had happened out there in the house when the Egyptian had 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 woken up the Israelite early, gotten him out to go work, and then raped his wife. And then he saw what happened out there in the field when the Egyptian taskmaster had specifically set upon and maked, not maked a kill, but maked to torment the Israelite. And Moshe got it, right? He had a nevuah. He had, he had an ability to assess the entirety of the situation. And the reason why that is significant midrashically is, and you can fill in the blank if you want in your head, if he didn't know exactly what happened, how would he possibly be justified taking the action he's about to take? If he didn't, if he, if he wasn't exactly sure what the circumstances were, that this was not just your regular, uh, you know, taskmaster doing his job, but 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 even a more per- pernicious version of it, then how is Moshe justified in doing hakaa and doing smiting, which is the same verb used to describe what the Egyptian did the Israelite? That's the midrashic interpretation according to Rashi through the midrash. Um, Norm and then Larry, and then we'll go back to Matt. Um, I had just wanted to say, reacting to something Toby had said, that if we were simply looking right and left to see that there were no witnesses, um, nonetheless, we could expect that the Israelite he saved is going to talk about it. People knew he was being beaten, and they absented themselves. And then he shows up alive and more or less well, as they are expecting to have to come and collect the body. He shows up alive and well, and they're going to say, whatever happened? Oh, this guy came from the palace dressed like an Egyptian nobleman and he killed this guy who was tormenting me and saved my life. And believe me, within the oppressed community, that's a story that would get out very, very fast. Yeah, great, Norm. Thank you. Um, Larry, Diane? I'll be done by then. So in terms of the Rashi, I think we have to to, um, identify who the he's are. So... The, the, the Rafi, Rashi Ra'ama Asa Lo Babayat should be, and he, Moses, saw what he, the Mitzri, had done to him, the Ivri. Correct. But notice, 
What the what happened in the house? The Mitzri raped Shlomit. So this 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 I, I, the feminist should have jumped in here, not me. Oh, I, I am a feminist. That what was done was not to him; it was done to his wife. But from Rashi's perspective, it's actually an offense against the husband. Yeah. And that, and I think I commented last week about the fact that the, the adultery is a crime against the husband, not against the wife. Here. Yeah. And that's a, it's a, it's a sensitive read there. It's an important read. One could respond to it by saying that, that what it's referring to on the me'asaloba bayit is, is, is not the rape, which is being understood as an offense to the husband, but, the, but the, the lying in wait, the waking him up early, the making the house more possible for the rape to take place, which began with an interaction between the taskmaster and the husband. But I still accept your comment. You're right, that that it, it's just a different worldview, um, uh, very, very different from, from ours in terms of understanding who was who the real victim there. And also remember that to be somewhat true to the text, the wife doesn't appear in the story. That's all midrashic, right? All, the, only, the only victim in the text is the man, right? So uh, you can also understand the Rashi put in that way. Um, Yes, Neora, we're in this in in Exodus Shmot, not um, Deuteronomy Devarim, chapter two, verse twelve. Um, okay, Barry, and then then Matt's going to continue with uh, the Rocky. Well, I, I want to go back to uh, Alexander what you had said, and then pick up uh, the line that you're bringing us now, Rabbi Clickfield, because it's very interesting. So, uh, as Alexandra said, this is a, a turning point uh, for Moshe. So, God is turning Moshe. This is a, a pro- his first prophetic moment. So, God is opening to Moshe this vision. This is his his first turning, his first vision. Uh, this is a major moment. Great. <laughs> Thank you, Alexandra, for bringing that up. It really is a great point. Right. If if we read the midrash as Vayifen Kovacho, meaning he got divine inspiration, Ruach HaKodesh, what's happening. Correct. It's, it's a pre-burning bush moment. It's his getting access to God's mind, not just his own mind. Great. Okay, Matt. Ulefib Shuto. Are you still there, Matt? You look frozen. Is Matt just very, very still, or is he frozen? Matt going once. Matt going twice. Sue, you want to take over? Will the peep shoot toe? Thank you. Will the peep shoot Wait, I'm here. I'm here. Hello? Ah. Hold on. Hello? Hello? Yes, back, Matt. Okay. Yes. Uh, okay. Um, first of all, with, with all respect to the to the the drash, I, I don't buy it at all. I mean, the text says, and here's what Rashi's going to say, very clearly the story. I mean, it's not prophetic. On the contrary, I would argue that it's, it shows how human Moshe is and how immature and what a teenager he is to not realize that there are people around and you actually go out and kill somebody. Um Right. Of, of, of course, that's what the verse says. And of course, we have a Midrashic tradition. But your right. comment reinforces that the, the, the text reporting, that he looked around and he saw there was no man, that the, 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 the facts that are d- delivered by that verse are undermined the next verse when it turns out, as you said, that clearly there was someone around because the story got right. out. So we're being told from Moshe's perspective that he did indeed declare it. He, he did, he did um, look around and there was no man. If we read that to suggest that there was no man, meaning he could do it without getting caught, that is undermined in, in the next verse too, which may be one of the reasons why the Midrash wants to see those words meaning something different. Because right. had he looked around and not seen, and, and seen that, that there was nobody around, that he would not have gotten into the pickle he got himself into the next verse. But even right. so. Or, or just as, as a way of presenting the story, he, he saw that he saw in his head that there was no one there, but that was right. a wrong analysis of the situation. Correct. And I, which, which I, are oh, 
And if you read the text on its simple meaning, it means what it says. Yeah, it means what it says, right? Our, those of you who've been with the class for a long time know that, um, and, I, and I've said this many times, but it bears repeating, that most of the time Rashi does not tell you he's coming from Midrash material. He just gives you his, his information. Sometimes he does this, where he gives you a Midrashic read, and then after that, he puts a semicolon and says, Ulafi Pshuto, and according to the simple reading, it's this. Sometimes he reverses it. The first thing he says in a verse is, Ulafi Pshuto, dot, 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 the Kach Midrasho, and this is the Midrashic reading. And um, it's interesting to think through, in Rashi's mind, when he gives you both the Pshat and the Drash, does the order in which he gives it suggest which one he prefers? And we're just guessing. Does it? Does does he leave leave us off with the one that he thinks should be the dominant idea of the verse, or does he lead off with the dominant one? Here he leads off with midrash and says, "Yeah." And here's the and here's what it means. I'm shot. Right. Sometimes he says it means this. I'm shot. But here's a nice midrash I want to invite you into. Okay, right. that's the end of what he says. Yeah. Right. I'd also like to. Sorry. I'd also like to doubt the connection of of Shlomit. Asia did read to this whole story. I mean, that's, as you pointed out last week, it's fetched from far away. It's far-fetched. I mean, how, how many examples of rape and miscegenation must there have been over anywhere between 200 and 400 years? Yeah. Oh, wait, far-fetched is one of my favorite Yiddish words. Leo far-fetched. Rock, that's the most yeah, Yiddish of English words. Far-fetched and ladle. ladle. Okay. Um, All right. Moving on. Biar ki en ish. Atid matzeit mimenu sheyit gayer. So he saw that there was no one, that there was no man. Atid matzeit, it, it, it was to come from him that he would convert. Atid matzeit mimenu, it was destined that in the future he would convert except that the way Rashi is reading this verse, the way he's commenting, you have to read the verse and the comment as one full sentence. Sometimes Uh the comment begins its own sentence. Here he wants you to read it as, Vayar ki ein ish atid latzeit mimenu shiit ga'er. So the ein ish goes Okay, so now try to translate. All right, he saw that no one would be destined to convert from this. What, is that, what, what does that mean? What, what, what's going on in this comment? Saw that there was no man destined to issue from him. Him, from which man? The man that he killed? Right. Well, clearly because he's dead, but uh, I don't know. It's, it, it's, it's, it's a troubling little Rashi that comes from Shmo Rabbah um, uh-huh. because the... the, the the thinking and the morality suggested by this comment really flies in the face of most things that we would really hold on to. Let's, I see some hands up. Let's see some people who want to comment on that. What do, you, what do you think is going on in this Rashi? Rick, Norm, Barry, Tova? Um, hi. Um, the, uh, the thing that I wanted to say was uh, about um, uh, him looking back and forth and, and um, I, I didn't, I wasn't ready to comment on that. Sorry. But um, anyway, go, go ahead. Okay, so, so hold that thought, Rick. Uh, let, let's, let's see if we can unpack what Rashi is saying here, quoting Midra- Midrash Rabbah. Norm? I think what Rashi is saying is that he's able to look into the future and see this man who was the rapist and then abuser um, is not going to be the father of anybody who becomes an Israelite, and oh. punishing him by killing him is okay. And so he proceeds to do exactly that. Yes, that's essentially the shot of the midrash, right? That and and just linger with it before you push against it, because it, it is a concept worth, worthy of pushing against. And let's linger also on this notion, as we discussed before, of Moshe getting his first verse of Ruach HaKodesh. He sees the future. He sees the past. He saw what happened in this guy's house, what happened in the field. He sees the future. He has a window into like God's mind, right? Uh, almost like, 
I don't know why my brain went there. Like John Cusack having a window into John Malkovich's mind in the, in the movie Being John Malkovich, where he sees through John Malkovich's eyes. Moshe seeing through, through God's eyes. Um, and he sees that this Egyptian, right, is not going to be part of the Erev Rav, the mixed multitude of people, nor are his children who are going to come out of Egypt um, and join the people, join the Israelites. And so just hold, hold your, your, uh, your disgust. There's nothing lost in ending his life, right? Or, or think of it like minority report. Like if we kill him now, all we're doing is sparing more Jews from Israelites from being killed. And, and there's no, nothing positive that's going to come out of his line. By the way, it's, it's not fun to think about, but pretty much every military decision every, made by every general is trying to think through is killing this person or set of people going to save more people than it costs. That, that's unfortunately, the, that, that, that's why war is so wicked, right? You know, we, to, this, to this day, we still um, uh, debate Truman's decision on Hiroshima. There were articles about it last week because we hit the, hit the anniversary. Um, and so many people saying that, uh, that to look at the 140,000 or so, I think, who were killed in, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, intentionally fails to look at the million that people that some of the uh, officials expected might have died on both sides had the war been allowed to continue. I, I don't want to debate that point. I want to say that this is in some ways still a, a salient thing that people have to think through. Here, though, it doesn't have to do only with how many more people this taskmaster will, will kill, but is there any redemptive part of his future? And to be an Egyptian in the Torah's eyes and the Midrash's eyes is not redemptive? No? All right, let's end it now. That's, that indeed, Norm, is the shot of the Midrash. Um, and if it's troubling, it makes sense that it's troubling. Um, all right. Or, uh, yeah, or is it a, a reference to that son that, is, that we read about last, that we talked about last week? Yeah, I wondered that. Um, that half-breed? Yeah. It's interesting to imagine that those two midrashim talking to one another. This one, I believe, is from um, Midrash Rabbah, and the main source um, for the other Midrash about the um, Shlomi Batibri, I think, was Tanchuma, if I'm not mistaken. So it's possible that they're in, relate, in, in conversation with each other. The language here is weird, that there's no person who's going to come from him to convert um, I know that, that our modern halachic understanding of conversion is different than the biblical notion, but the child of Shlomit Batibri and this guy wouldn't have needed to convert. So it's hard to know if right. that's a reference to that. Um, let's, I got five hands up. Uh, let's do Barry, Tova, Alexandra, Susan, Rick. That last point was exactly where I was going, and you've already concluded it. Thank you. You're welcome. Tova. Uh, that was also where I was going, but I will add a little bit to it. Uh, well, even if the, these two things are coming from different Midrashic sources, Rashi has introduced us to the previous one. And what's suggested by this, that well, since there was a son that came of it, and it was a son who ended up in a fight, blasphemes God's name, and Moses condemns, it just seems like that had to be in Rashi's head. And so it's almost like saying at this point that Moshe prophetically knows that not only with this child, essentially, uh, though technically a Hebrew will in fact not be a true Hebrew, but that he will be, that he's almost pre-condemning him at this point, which is troubling in a sense. It, uh, yeah. Because rather than seeing Moses as a torn but true judge at that time, now he is foreseeing the nature of this. Yeah, great. I'm going to correct myself because now that I look at another place, um, another version of Rashi that has the more of the citations, um, both of these are from Shmot Rabbah, chapter one, uh, um, chapter one of Shmot Rabbah. So, so the comment about um, um, that he didn't see a person emanating from this line who was going to convert is from the same collection of Midrashim. It's, it's authored by the same rabbi, but the same collection of Midrashim was the previous one. And what you said, Toba, is really evocative because you're right that we're killing this guy 
And the one offspring that we know about, forget about whether or not he converts, mm-hmm. um, is a blasphemer who gets killed, right? So it's almost as if uh, um, his son's, his fate and his son's fate are somehow uh, created in this, in this exact moment. And by the way, uh, and there, there's a lot about this in literature, that, that is the danger of thinking that you have Ruach HaKodesh, right? It, to, to have prophecy is a tremendous burden because if you're pretty sure you know what's going to happen, then you act on it. And sometimes that seals people's fates that didn't deserve to have their fates sealed in that way. Uh, Alexandra, Rick, Rebecca, Sue. My comment sort of has something to do with Renee's comment in the chat that um, I I think it's important to look at Rosh's comment as troubling. And I also think it's important to look at it as not troubling, um, keeping in mind that we're a different generation and we sort of take morality for granted and this this was before the torah before morality was introduced to to at least this portion of humanity and so um it's important to acknowledge that convert to not look at it by today's standard as oh he's converting he's not going to be a jew or he's not going to be um what we like he's not going to see god in the same way it's he's going to have offspring that are just terrible (laughs) that are like completely amoral um human beings because that was as i understand it the dichotomy of the world at the time it was not yeah, it was like, are you, um, is there a sense of developing morality among you as someone who is, uh, or is there none? It's not articulate, but I hope my point sort of got made. <laughs> no, it, it, of course it did. And, and we're, whether we're assessing Moses and the Egyptian or Woodrow Wilson or anyone in between, we're always caught, um, in the pickle of trying to figure out by which moral standards to judge them by. And of course, when we're studying rabbinic text, we're actually seeing the layers of it, almost like James Michener in the tell, because we're seeing, we're judging kind of with our understanding of the world, Rashi's treatment from a thousand years ago of rabbinic treatment a thousand years before that, of text written a thousand years before that, right? So, and, and, and a thousand years is a long time to develop the human mind and the human soul. And so, um, each layer of that treatment is being assessed from a different historical point of view where we understood the interactions between people very differently than we do now. So I think that is an important point. Um, and, I, and I still think it's okay to look at this comment of Rashi and imagine even kind of back, back tracing this decision of Moshe whether or not to kill this person based on whether or not someone good, and not good, someone Jewish would emerge from him is a, is a, is a troubling thing. I, I, and I think it's okay to name it as troubling or certainly to name it as something that would be troubling if, if that kind of a interpretation were either created today or worse, wielded today, right? Imagine someone wielding this interpretation, justifying some kind of, um, some kind of a tre- treatment of the non-Jew because using this text to rely on clearly the non-jewish life is not as significant as a jewish life because had a jewish had a non-jewish life been as significant as jewish life it would not have been justified for emotion to kill this guy so i accept your your commentary we do that's important to reckon with these ideas because we're are studying this text now and not studying in the 11th century uh rick rebecca susan marshall will we ever move forward doesn't matter rick hi thanks so I wanted to go back to the uh, um, shot, I guess, that um, he's defending this uh, man who's about to be killed. So it's, it's not like the minority report where they're predicting in the future, oh, he's going to kill somebody. He's, he's killing somebody right now. And um, uh, I, I like that Moses stood up uh, for that. I also wanted to mention when we're talking about Midrash, we skipped past because of the brevity of the words we skip past Moses growing up in the palace, the Midrash where the magicians predict he's going to uh, take Pharaoh's crown and they put him in for the crown and the charcoal and Gabriel pushes his hand towards the charcoal and that's how he gets slow of speech. That was already gone uh, and, he, and now he's grown up 
And I, I do want to uh, reference the Ten Commandments again by uh, Cecil B. DeMille, Charlton Heston, and I think it was Vincent Price who he kills. And uh, yeah, he was killing somebody. And uh, it, was a, it wasn't self-defense, but it was defending uh, the weak. And uh, I really liked that part of uh, the story. So justifying that, yeah, in the future, he wasn't going to be that Jewish. That's not the point. The point is that um, he stood out from the Egyptian... Uh, ruling class and he tried to defend this uh this slave yeah thank you rick rebecca or leonard hi um i wanted to bring in a slightly different perspective but before i do so let me just quickly say that yach that the root of yach is actually nun kaf he hmm okay all right, so Nechama Leibowitz uh, makes an observation looking at this verse and the few that follow, that this is actually the first of three times that Moses intervenes to protect the victim from the, to save the victim from the aggressor. In this particular case, it's a non-Jew afflicting the Jew. In the next case, it's going to be two Jews arguing with each other. And in the third case, where the well and the shepherds chase the daughters of, uh, what's his name, away from the well over there, it's, it, he's protecting, again, the victim. In this case, it's a non-Jew being oppressed by non-Jews. And so uh, I think the point that she's making is that one might assume from the first case and maybe even from the second case, uh, uh, outsider versus a Jew or a Jew versus a Jew, that Moses might be doing this just for his own you know, trying to gain favor amongst his his people there by saving somebody or by being, you know, solving disputes and so on. But certainly the third case shows that this is actually in his nature over here where he has absolutely nothing to gain. He's been banished from the from the kingdom. And yet he still believes that the, you know, and what's right is right and that he should be saving the one who's being oppressed. Wonderful. That's a wonderful addition. Thank you. Thank you, Leonard. In terms of the, the root uh, are you saying that that even the verb lehakot in the infinitive and hika he kafe that the root is non nun kafe? That is correct. And and the word maka, same thing. The root is nun kafe. Hmm. There is no he he kafe. Huh. Great. Thank you for illuminating that. Sue and Marshall. By the way, I, that might be true in biblical Hebrew. I, I bet if you look up in a modern Hebrew dictionary. Um, if you look up hey kaf hey as a past as a past tense verb, it would it would be listed there as the shoresh. But it's interesting to think that it's like a a pain nun verb with a nun dropped out so much that it doesn't even it it, it almost doesn't appear. Right. All right. Go ahead, um, Sue. Yeah, I I it was long ago, and Tova talked all about what I was going to talk about. So all good. Okay. And Marshall. Uh, I don't know what to make about Lahit Gayer, but I, I'm just looking at the actual source in, in Shemot Rabbah, where it says, Barabbanan uh, Amri, the rabbi said, There is no expectation of righteous people, coming from him, until the end of all the generations. So here we have the idea of Sitkaniut, uh, you know, righteousness, as opposed to focusing on Hikayer uh, uh, conversion. Does Hikayer does appear in the in the midrash itself? No. Interesting. So, unless there are other versions of that midrash, then Rashi is offering a midrash on the midrash by lifting the concept of righteousness from the rabbinic era and. And it's Rashi, the one who converts that into kind of a, a national or religious identification by saying the Hitka Yer. Well, we That's think of someone who's a Ger Tzedek. Yeah. yeah. Righteous convert. Yeah. Thank you, Marshall. It's both, um, listen, it's always illuminating to know more, right? So um, when we, when we can, can see the sources that Rashi depended on, we get a sense of his, of his, um, of his um, process but it also shows you a bit more about how the sausage is made and, and what Rashi, what decisions Rashi was making in terms of which Midrashim he quoted and which words he used and, and the 
and, and his own interpretive power and his own interpretive bias. So um, it definitely complicates things in an interesting way when we, see, when we see the original sources from which he took his comment. Barbara? Hi, Barbara. You there, Barbara? Yeah, I just had to get up to the top of the sheet. Um, in the Silverman Rashi, he says he saw, um, no, wait, here, hold it. That there was, he saw that there was no man destined to issue from him who would become an adherent of Israel's religion. And then he says to confront Targ John, which I guess is Targum Jonah. I don't know if that adds anything to what you've been saying, because you've only mentioned the Rabbah. Um, yeah. So Targ, Targum Yonatan is one of, of three rather well-known and still used translations of the Torah into Aramaic. The one that we refer to is, is Unculus, because that's the most well-known. But there was something called Targum Yonatan, which was a Targum, a translation of the Torah into Aramaic by um, some guy named Yonatan, and there's also Tal, uh, Targum Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem translation. And um, I believe that that we don't have full extant traditions of both of those. And just like Unculus, occasionally, and I think if I remember correctly, more frequently than Unculus, Targum Yonatan goes from being just a translation to a commentator, commentary. So there are places where Targum Yonatan is giving you his interpretation of his uh, of what he thinks that verse means, and not just the translation. So even in um, so in some annotated versions of Rashi, do we have it here? Does he give credit to Targum Yonatan? Um, I, I'm looking. I have three different tra- uh, versions of Rashi in front of me, and some of them actually cite Targum Yonatan on this line that he was going to. Um, saw that no one of was going to convert to Judaism from this line, quoting Targum Yonatan and not quoting um, the Midrash, which makes me think, going back to Marshall's point, that it may be Targum Yonatan who introduced the word Hitgayer to be uh, converted, even though it did not appear in the Midrash of material. But that's what that source means. Yeah. Thank you. Thank well, you. All right. Uh, I see no more hands on this. Let's go to the next verse and we'll at least get some momentum going on the verse before we have to have to uh, to move. Um, let's see who we have not heard from yet today. Carol, do you want to read verse 13? Okay, let me get my better uh, microphone. Okay, are you hearing me okay? Yep. Yep. Vayetze bayom hasheni and he went out on on a second day or the second day mm-hmm. and um, here were two people uh, Hebrew Hebrew men Hebrew men um, I don't know Nitzim. I'm assuming it's fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said to the the evil one, "Why, why are you going to hit your friend?" Good. So excellent translation. Uh, Nitzim is not a very common Hebrew word. It's often often translated here as to fight or to quarrel. And just pay attention to some of the words in the verse, and then we'll see what kind of question you have on it. So again, we have. The word ish, but in plural, we have anashim. Okay, um, notice just the beautiful alliteration of shnei anashim ivrim nitzim. Uh, it just kind of um, it, it, it reads nicely. Um, and notice, I don't, I don't, I don't want to lead the witness, but notice the word rasha and the word reacha in the verse. Rasha means the wicked one, and reacha means your fellow, but your but but more than your fellow, almost like your beloved one thing. We talked about weddings at the beginning of, um, of this uh, class. Um, um, we say the sixth bracha, the Sheva brachot. God, bring great joy to your, your re'im ahuvim, your, your, your beloved loving partner. So a re'ah is an intimate 
way of referring to a fellow, right? So what do people think about the use of some of those words on that verse or what questions would you ask on it? Floor is open to anyone, not just to Carol. Rebecca Leonard, Diane, Larry, and Norm. Yeah, how did he know which one was the evil one? Right. It doesn't seem, in the previous scene, it, we have a taskmaster hitting an Israelite. So it's clear what the power dynamics are. <clears throat> We're introduced to these people as two people involved in a thing. Shnei Anashim Ivrim Nitzim. Two equals. So not only how did he know which one was evil, like... How, who's to, what's to suggest that either of them was evil? Evil. So you can you can be sure that Rashi is going to want to figure out what the word Rasha is doing in that verse because that is a pretty strong accusation. Great question, uh, Larry Diane. Only going to comment that it invites midrash or suggests that in fact there's a backstory here, which often, as we're reading the text, we want we want to think or maybe don't want to think. I want to think that there is this backstory, and for whatever reason, it hasn't been included. Yeah. But you can you can go, what was the expression you used last time? A rabbit hole or some sort of, we can really go down, it. we can dig a deep hole here about what this story is besides the one that Rashi is going to go to. Correct. Shnei Anashim Ivrim Nitzim is, it's like, uh, you can move, depending on which, um, movie you want to go you want to go um alice in wonderland it's a rabbit hole you go mary poppins it's 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 a two-dimensional painting on the pavement but if you, if you were dick van dyke and you could jump into that who, who are these guys what are they fighting about there, there could be a carousel there could there could be a horse there could be a derby uh with a horse race at the end of that uh, end of that pathway right and, and and it's just flat in the text because it's just a it's a it's a plot point really to help us understand something about Moshe, not about them, but it's almost like, um, like curiously and um, teasingly flat. Good. Anyone else? Marshall and Judy? Uh, just in the Rav Milim dictionary, the word Nitzim has four meanings. It says, as a biblical term, it means to dispute, and it gives other meanings of to quarrel, to strive, and to struggle. So it seems to me that if the first one, they're starting to quarrel, I'm sorry, they're having a dispute, and then it gets hotter. They're quarreling with each other. And finally, they're struggling. And one is hitting. Then finally, one lashes out and hits the other person. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, it, it, it is a little bit evocative of Cain, Cain Behevel, Cain and Abel, who are just out in the field. And all of a sudden, there's a murder. How does that happen? How do people go from just being in the field and, and to, to bloodshed? Um, I want to raise up uh, what Rachel said about the previous verse, that because Rashi didn't comment on it, we didn't spend a whole lot of time on it, that, that burying him in the sand is a, is a, is a pretty, um, pretty loud scene in the, in, 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 in the verse itself, a pretty loud two-word image, and Rashi does not comment on it at all, um, and it doesn't seem to get a whole lot of treatment on the page even beyond the Rashi. There's a few here and there. Um, um, okay, let's go to, ooh, a lot of hands. Uh, let's do Marshall, Judy, Norm, Barry, and then we'll call it a day because we're basically over time. Marshall. No, that was my comment. Oh, that was you. Okay, Are Judy. You? So, um, that was your comment, Marshall? Okay, so I'm looking at the parallel uh, between verse 11 and this verse with Maqe and Take. And it makes me think of this phrase, um, uh, it's in the Gemara somewhere, about Name uh, Yisraelim, that uh, it's not just the Egyptians who are guilty of wicked behavior. Uh, don't, you know, it's within all of us, and it's a foreshadowing of what Moshe is going to have to deal with in the desert. There's going to be a whole lot of uh, trouble up ahead, and and it's not just the oppressor and the oppressed, but the infighting. It's a very interesting parallel to me. 
Yeah, this idea as we're as we're judging the Egyptian for Moshe to name or for the Torah to name in Moshe's mind, an Israelite as a Rasha is really interesting, right? And I, I hadn't thought about that from the angle you just mentioned, Judy, of of a premonition of Moshe's entanglements with this stiff-necked people. They're not called Rasha in the desert. They're Amkshe Oref, but there is some Rishut there. There's some evil there as well. Good. A different direction than Rashi's going, but that's wonderful. Norm, last comment of the day. Um, I just think since we're dealing with, with a Rashi commentary, we automatically have to wonder um, just who are these two men that are fighting with each other? Yeah. And I suspect Rashi will tell us. At least his Rashi will tell us a, a little bit about it, but mostly Rashi is going to tell us Moshe's perception of these men and his decision to get involved. So let's end there. Next week, like this week, we'll start with the Rashi on the verse rather than the verse. And um, uh, have a good week, everybody. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.